You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Break a Bat Podcast, where baseball meets Broadway. An attempt to show that my two favorite mediums don't have to live in such separate worlds and maybe even break some stigmas. We're happy to have you with us. Now let's play ball. Hello and welcome to Break a Bat, where baseball meets Broadway. I'm your host, Al Malafronte, coming at you for the Broadway Podcast Network with a very special hitter tonight. Uh, Joining us in the batter's box is a Broadway veteran of more than 25 years. He actually made his Broadway debut in a certain show that has some really special ties to our baseball and Broadway crossover fans and damn Yankees. Uh, He's since gone on to appear in eight more Broadway shows, including three Tony winners in Titanic, Contact, and Spamalot. And to this day, his most recent credit as Vlad and Anastasia remains one of my favorite comedic performances of all time. And uh, I'm sure our regular audience has heard me talk about how much I love the Broadhurst Theater as far as favorite Broadway stadiums go. Uh, So my guest tonight is certainly a key player and one of my fondest memories there. So uh, we're so happy you could join us tonight. And with that being said, if you'll please turn your attention to home plate, just beyond the marquee. Now batting, John Bolton. John, welcome to Break a Bat. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Now, what number are you wearing, uh, you know, as you come out of the dugout and get ready for your, you know, your first at bat here? 21. Paul O'Neill's number. Okay, I like that. Did, did you have that in mind, obviously? <laughs> it was my number in Damn Yankees, actually. It was my number in Damn Yankees, so it was the first thing that came to mind. I love that. And, you know, this is a big deal for me, man, because we get a few members of the actual Yankee family come visit us on Break of Bat, but on the Broadway front, you're the first member of that Damn Yankees family who's ever come visit us. So this is pretty cool. And to this day, that is one of the most fun shows I have ever, ever gotten to do. I uh, joined the company right after they opened, and then uh, and then Jerry Lewis came in, and we had a big reopening because it, you know, it's Jerry Lewis. But it was a great show, and and I'm glad it was my first show because talk about teamwork. I mean, uh, you know, I love the theater because it's uh, the best team sport to me, Uh, and it was a great show. You know, for my mom and dad to see, it's a great dad show. You know. Uh, I just had the absolute best time. And in addition to playing one of the ball players, I got to do some voiceover work. And my scene partner was the great Mel Allen of of the New York Yankees. Uh, He put on tape for us a lot of, you know, a few of the lines, but I was live on stage every night playing with his uh, his recorded voice. But I got to do some color commentary with Mel Allen every night. And uh, that was not lost on me. That was a lot of fun. And if memory serves, that was right before Mel Allen died, because he died in 96, and your debut was like 94, 95, if I remember correctly? 94, yeah, and he did. He died, I think, very late in our run, uh, I remember that. And it was very odd that night, because obviously here I am speaking with a recently deceased legend, uh, so that was a very sentimental performance for sure. In fact, I believe we dedicated the performance to him that night. I think Jerry um, uh, spoke to the audience afterward, and and we mentioned Mel, because just the iconic voice of the Yankees. Did you ever have any Yankee alumni in the audience while you were performing? Uh, not that show, but I'll tell you, Joe Torre and his, his wife's a big theater fan, and they came to see, oh gosh, it was either Christmas Story or Curtains, but he was super friendly and, you know, stayed on stage and chatted with a bunch of us uh, for quite a while afterward and seemed very appreciative of, uh, again, the teamwork that he just witnessed. So it was, uh, that was flattering. We all grabbed photos with him and Facebook bragged about that for quite a while. 
<laughs> I certainly would have done the same. And, uh, you know, I know you grew up in Rochester where you have the Red Wings, the Orioles affiliate back in the day. And uh, to my understanding, you grew up in a pretty sports heavy house. Did you ever give the sports thing a try yourself? <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, my big brothers will need to talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a very sports heavy house, uh, considering that my big brothers, Rob and Tom, who are 10 and 12 years older than me, um, started the Brighton, Pittsburgh, which are two of the hugest suburbs of Rochester, soccer league. And at eventually having like 64 different teams. Um, and this was the very early 70s when they did it, when soccer was just really starting to become a thing. Oh, actually, I think they started 69. And soccer's just you know, blooming in the suburbs there. And they really were able to catch that wave and create a huge thing that exists to this day. I believe it's expanded even further since they've left it. Anyway, of course, it was expected that, you know, seven, eight-year-old dorky me was going to play soccer. And I enjoyed it. I, I tried. Uh, and then one time on the field, I was struck on the head, squarely on the head, with a very long kick, and it knocked me out. And I woke up with everyone around me, and it scared me. And I think that developed a sort of a bit of a fear of the ball. But if I may just tell one little anecdote that I think you'll appreciate, my the next year, my big brother, Rob, who was sort of the big commissioner of the league, um, would choose all the teams. He had you know, all of the paperwork from all of the kids. And, you know, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of kids. And he said, Johnny, you can you can pick your own team. He let me pick the team name, the Toros, which I thought was so cool. And so I said, well, let's see. Scott Walcott's a great, great player. Let's put him on the team because we want to win. Oh, and there's Rick Schlageter. He's a great player. Let's put him on. And then something dawned on me. And I thought, wait a second. I do not want to be the worst player on my big brother's team. So I thought for a moment and went through the applicants. And I deliberately picked the quietest, shyest, last kids picked in gym class that I could find and their little brothers so that I would not be the worst player on the team. <sighs> so See, that right? happened. Yeah, you were like an early version of the Alley Stock and Bloom purposely producing a flop. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. I never thought of that. But uh, And you know what? About halfway through the season, remember, because, you know, I'm little, I'm not, don't drive. My brother's driving us home from a game where we were just, Killed. And he's like, you picked these kids on purpose, didn't you? It's like, well, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, I think he's since forgiven me. I hope he's since forgiven me. <laughs> but I was the, I, you know, tennis became my sport. Um, I, I played daily. We'd get up and my dad would wake me up. We'd get up at 530 in the morning and we'd go to Salmon Creek Country Club outside of Rochester. And just so we could grab a game in between me going to high school and him going to work at the bank. And that was great. And played it all through high school, all through college. And I just haven't been around a court or a racket. I just don't have that the people to sort of grab and say, let's go hit a few, you know, I just, I'm just out of it. I just haven't done it. And every year, every new year's like this year, I'm going to get back into tennis because it wasn't bad. I was good. My dad and I won some father son stuff at our country club and all that. So, you know, I have something to brag about. And I was a fast runner. My kids I went to high school with still tell me you were the fastest kid in class. What happened? And I'm like, I don't know what happened. I just uh, wanted something steady, like musical comedy. 
Yeah, yeah that, that's a, that's a pretty good uh, transition because I was very curious because you know you mentioned your college days. I know you were a journalism major. Uh, yeah. Now you must have you did some acting while you were growing up as a kid, but do you put acting on the back shelf at that point? And if so, is there something that made you rediscover your love for it? You know, once you were out of college. Well, I only did like one show a year, like in high school, and I wasn't even very good. I mean, my first time I tried out, I didn't even get in because there are no boy sopranos in Guys and Dolls, you know, and I was a very late bloomer, so to speak. I was always the shortest kid until all of a sudden senior year, I was one of the tallest kids. But, um, but you know, my parents would take us to, would take me to New York once a year because dad had business trip and mom and I would go along. We'd see a couple Broadway shows and that was my introduction uh, to live stage work, really. Uh, and seeing Annie was a big deal because the, even though they were girls on stage, they were kids and it was a band, a group of kids my age up there looking like they're having a great time. And I, that, that especially really, uh, lit into me with that, but uh, no one ever said, Hey, do you want to do this professionally? Because I wasn't good enough. The best you could ever say about anything I ever did when I was in high school was that, well, I had energy. That's about it. Um, but it wasn't until I was in college that I was really just diving into all the community theater that fortunately Rochester of, you know, offered um, in the area. And uh, so I sort of got my toe in the water, foot in the water. And I got my degree in journalism. And then I thought, you know, let's just try New York. Why not? So I auditioned for Summer Stock uh, and got in. And then that job led to another job, which led to another job and et cetera. And here it is like almost 30 years later, which I cannot believe. It's just crazy. Now you mentioned that you had a lot of energy. Did you always know you were funny? Uh, I knew I wanted to be funny. I knew I respected people that were funny. Um, you know, my parents were big bridge players. So every Saturday night they'd leave me, this kid alone in the house and but I had the best education because on Saturday nights was the Mary Tyler Moore show, the Bob Newhart show, Taxi, and the Carol Burnett show. And this, you know, to to your listeners who grew up in the seventies, this was the holy grail of comedy, you know. And so I feel like those were my teachers: Tim Conway, Harvey Corman, the great Harvey Corman, um, Orson Bean, who I'm proud to say became a friend later later in life, a friend and mentor later in life. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I think that was like masterclass, you know, so I was sought out funny things and tried to break down in my head. Why is that funny? Or why isn't that funny? And then, uh, when I first moved to New York, one of my first jobs was a temp job was renting the headsets at the back of the Broadway theaters. And, um, I, you'd sort of settle into one theater and my two theaters were the Barrymore where the sisters Rosenzweig, great comedy by Wendy Wasserstein starring Madeline Kahn and Robert Klein and just great, great funny people and crazy for you, which had Harry Groner and Bruce Adler and just a great, again, comedic cast and getting to watch those shows over and over and over like about a hundred times, you see the actors find the laughs and then lose the laughs. And they, then you see them try to go back for the laugh too hard and not get it. And it just sort of became, aha, I know why he didn't get that laugh, because that guy over there moved on that punchline or because of this. And that, in addition to the, my Saturday nights as a kid, was a great education in terms of, you know, what, just consistently watching the same comic pieces over and over and being able to break it down. Why is that working? Why isn't that working? That was a gift. 
So you're a legitimate student of comedy, is what was is what I'm hearing here. <laughs> uh, sure, and I, I had all the Lily Tomlin albums, which were great because they're all so character based. Again, I'm back in childhood, and uh, you know, you give me a couple old fashions, and I'll launch right into some of those routines. <laughs> just um, uh, you know, it's just it's just great comic writing, um, and always character based, and they always just sort of get you with some sort of. I think the best comedy is the kind that can just punch you in the gut. Uh, when you're not expecting it, shows like Fleabag or Catastrophe. You know, I don't know if any of your your listeners know those those shows, but they're these great, great comic pieces that you just laugh your face off, and then you're literally crying the next moment. And I think I think if you're able to do that, you've got all my respect. Now, let me ask you this one because you know, one as I mentioned earlier, I loved your performance in Anastasia. I cannot say, however, that I saw the animated movie as a kid, but I do know that Kelsey Grammer gave a brilliant performance. Now, I'm going to just give you a little baseball parallel here because you have a lot of players who face a dilemma of, let's say if you look up to a certain player and try to emulate them in certain ways, but you also want to make the part your own. You you want to make your own mark on the position you're playing. Jeter was a great example of that. A kid grew up watching Cal Ripken, both big shortstops, great skill sets, but also very different skill sets. So, you know, to this day, they're forever loved for the unique mark that they made on the position. You're funny. Kelsey's funny. You're both tremendous actors. When you heard you were up the up for the part of Vlad, for example, what did you take from Kelsey's performance and which parts of uh, John Bolton did you bring to it? Uh, well, uh, I watched the movie once and it was before my audition because I had not seen the film. Um, I knew about the history of the actual Romanovs and stuff, uh, which I always found fascinating. Um, but I had not seen the film. So, of course, you are going in for this role that already sort of exists, and they're going to want something of of what they know in the audition. So I listened to it once, and I feel like I got the flavor, the sort of European, Eastern European flavor in the voice, a little bit of weariness, uh, Dasha Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. <clears throat> and... Uh, and I went in with that, and it seemed to work. And then I started to watch the movie again right before we started rehearsals, and I thought, I don't want to do this. I thought the flavor that I brought to the audition was enough, and I'm saying a lot of the same lines. I don't want to resort to any sort of slavish attempted at reproduction of anything. Uh, and the same, I faced the same predicament with A Christmas Story, where I played the dad, he of the leg lamp, and, um, you know, of course, we've all seen that movie a million times. And I think Darren McGavin's performance in that film was one of the most brilliant in the history of time. And um, I feel like what I needed to do with that was to nod to it or the audience would be pissed if I didn't at least acknowledge it, honor it, because it is very honor worthy. Um, but I would cheat myself out of any opportunity to, you know, be me. Um, you know, I have to sing and dance, uh, and he, he didn't. So I, I feel like if I, any sort of slavish reproduction would have cheated me out of the performance I needed to give. So you nod to it, you let them know that you're in on the joke and then you move forward. That's amazing. I, and you know what, the, the Christmas story performance, especially, cause I know that it was that run that you did initially was so successful that they kept bringing you back and you got to play at the garden. Was that just like a dream yep. come true for a performer? Dude, playing the guard. Well, first of all, that role 
that role was such a thrill. Um, and to take it from, you know, regional theater to national tour to Broadway to the following year, Madison Square Garden, and then back on tour. Yeah, that was that was quite a ride. That was a great, great ride. Um, it was five years of my life. I have <laughs> wounds from that one, uh, meaning not mental ones, I'm proud to say, but, you know, a cracked rib here and a broken ankle there and all that. But the main thing is, you know, I've, I've literally lain in an orchestra pit with a cracked rib during the run of that show and, and said, and, and they all were around me. Are you okay? You're okay. And I was like, I'm okay. Did they laugh? And they were like, yeah, they laughed. I was like, okay, good. (laughs) You know, and you just suck it up and go on. It's so funny. I mentioned Paul O'Neill before, wearing number 21. He played the whole 99 postseason with a broken rib. So it's just like right off there the bat, go. he picked a perfect thing here. You know, you do what you do. It is a team sport. You To do eight shows a week, and I tend to get the physical Pratt Folly, you know, kooky limber man roles, which are so fun to do, and I'm thrilled they let me do it. But um, it it's a toll. It definitely takes a toll on your body and you, and you need to be in good shape. And like I mentioned, I like my old fashions and I love a steak dinner after a show, but boy, you better be drinking a lot of water and taking naps between shows and you better stretch before every show and make sure that everything is tip top. And you know, the dancers on Broadway, there's not an ounce of fat on any of those men and women. And they are the heroes of, of these shows. Talk about athletes, men, these are thoroughbred athletes, every single one of them. What they do eight times a week, taking people and putting them on their heads eight times a week. And, you know, and then there's the swings who have, who are the understudies for the chorus who have to know all of the chorus parts in each show. I don't know how they do it. They've got crazy brains, you know, it's like, like pinch hitting, but it's, you know, taking every bit of strength and mental capacity you've got they are the true true heroes of any broadway show and you know you are a very physical performer i will say you know one of my favorite numbers and in many ways i've compared it to what you know the katzman brothers who were my original co-hosts uh what we try to do with the broadway world you know when you're educating anya uh, it's like kind of like us trying to educate the broadway world about baseball i guess you know given your you know your traumatic soccer field injury it's good that it was clena who got hit on the head with the chalkboard not you right <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely right well do you know that bit was something that we put in uh in previews uh and and we always had fans say to us we were there the night that Derek got hit with the chalkboard and i'm like oh that night huh well guess what it happened it was, you know, every show is is when it happened. But uh, yeah, we're glad people liked that. And uh, Klein was great. Talk about a baseball player. And I know he's been on your show. Man, he's he's just the greatest. And he is such a goofball backstage. And that that man can make me laugh so hard, often at very inappropriate moments on stage. There were times we literally had to like glaze our eyes. <laughs> we couldn't make any sort of eye contact because we would be screwed. And you know, there's that, um, that the music box, the precious Anastasia music box. That's just like this precious thing kind of drops at one. <laughs> and it's like, Oh my God, just getting through that show. I think we got in trouble. I think, I literally think we got in trouble. I remember hearing the conductor go, come on guys, in the (laughs) middle of the song, in front of a full house. So, uh, but those are just, that's just fun. 
I'm a terrible laugher on stage. I just came off off the road, well, pre-COVID, right off the road with uh, Hello, Dolly. And I was opposite the great Carolee Carmelo. And there's a long extended sequence where her character is just trying to get me. Well, she got me. And it just became a whole situation where the audience would just go. And it was literally like the Carol Burnett show, Harvey Corman cracking up on the Carol Burnett show. You're just helpless. You just, there's nothing you can do, you know, except try to be a professional and move on. I think the audience appreciates that type of thing, though. We do like to see that human element when we're watching, you know, baseball or theater. And, you know, it is performers like you that really, you know, like you said, you know, trying to keep it professional. But, you know, you do it in a way that we can really appreciate. Well, you know, we try, but it's uh, it's hard when you're when you're doing performance number 700 and, you know, someone, you know, farts on stage. All you want to do is die because <laughs> it's it's funny, you know, but um. I want to I'll go back for a second to um, one of my great influences. Hey, what's one of your favorite baseball movies? Pride of the Yankees. That's oh, it. that's great. That and Field of Dreams, you could you could flip a coin, honestly. But I mean, that's the one that came to mind first. Oh, great. Oh, well, you picked two of the greatest um, in terms of sentiment, true heart, and, a tr- and truly capturing, I think, the emotional aspect of the game. My favorite is a little, a little lighter, but I think it's heavy because it touches on a lot of issues in terms of um, sportsmanship and team players. My favorite sports movie ever is The Bad News Bears, the original Classic. I grew up with it. it. I went to see that movie. I paid to see that movie about six or seven times because for the first time I was seeing kids on screen who were not disnified and cute and, you know, British or whatever. They were, to, to my knowledge, as normal as kids I had ever seen. And now as an adult, I revisit that film about once a year and I get so much out of it. What it says, it says so much about sportsmanship and competition and how adults can interfere with that and and distort what the whole point of the whole thing is for the kids. The kids get it, you know, trust your kids. And um, I, I just get so much out of that movie. And uh, and that also, in addition to the girls of Annie, I got to say the boys of the Bad News Bears were such an influence to me as look at that group of guys, not only giving great performances, but clearly they're working well together because they're re- there's retakes of this and retakes of that. And it was just such a special thing. And one day when we were in uh, L.A., I was out there with curtains trying it out at the, uh, the uh, Amundsen Theater. I made a day trip to uh, Chatsworth, California, and I walked around the, the baseball field in Mason Park where they filmed the original Bad News Bears. And Al, it was like the Holy Land. I literally felt like I was in the Holy Land. It was such a moment for me. That's so surreal. That's one, you know what, they should, when Broadway comes back, that's, that's the type of sports movie that I would love to see turned into a musical. I know they tried to make Bull Durham happen and there was a lot of issues with the rights to the music and all this stuff, but something like Bad News Bears is just so so timeless that it would work so well. And a character like Coach Buttermaker, you would play him great. I could totally see you taking on that role. <laughs> to talk about it, Walter Matthau, that that performance there just should have won an Oscar. I mean, he's, he's just the greatest. But, you know, the film almost is a musical because of its use. I don't know if you remember, but they use all of the music from the opera Carmen in that. It's all the underscoring of the Toreador march and all the famous themes from Carmen are throughout the Bad News Bears, and it almost plays like a musical. Oh, 
That, you know what, I never stopped to think of it, but you know what, I guess that's, that's a reason why it resonates with, you know, especially for any baseball fan, but especially someone like you who works in the arts, obviously that's, I've never really stopped to think about that, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> now I have a question from Break of Bats co-creator, Chris Katzman. You talked about the golden age of comedy before Taxi. We were both big fans of Nick at Night when we were growing up and we would watch Happy Days, Taxi, I Love Lucy, all those shows. And of course, the Brady Bunch. And to this day, I think he's still as big a Brady Bunch fan as there is for a 30-year-old. He wants to know, how'd you become so tight with Eve Plum? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I actually have a Skype date with her as soon as we're done. So I will tell her you asked and she will be very flattered. Um, She's just one of of my besties uh, for over 30 years now. We met in 1990-ish doing Summer Stock. Uh, she was doing one show and I was doing another and we kind of bonded over our mutual love for old bookstores. She said, Hey, I'm going to this old bookstore tomorrow. Who wants to go? I was like, actually I would. And you know, um, you know, one sort of date led to another and led to another. And here we are all these years later. Um, she's just the greatest friend. Um, she has, you know, been there for me in so many ways. Uh, and I hope I've been there for her as well. Uh, her husband's one of my best friends as well. It's a great guy, Ken Pace. Um, and I don't know what I'll say. We got to do a play together. Even I got to do same time next year, a two-person play together where we had to be basically naked in bed, which was awkward. Um, but uh, so much fun. No one can make me laugh as much as she can. And, uh, you know, they did the whole... Um, Brady, very Brady renovation for HGTV. I don't know if you know, they went to the, they bought the house, HGTV bought the house that was used for the establishing shots for the Brady Bunch and made the inside look exactly like the studio at Paramount where they shot it. And I got to um, be one of her guests for the sort of grand tour of that. So I got to go to the Brady Bunch house with Eve. And that was just, that was really, really amazing. That was just like walking up those iconic stairs. I was just thinking, what is my life right now? You know, just one, one of those great, great moments. And of course, hanging with the whole cast, many of whom I've gotten to know over the years. Now, let me ask you, these days, are you more recognized, you know, among the theater crowd? Or would you say, you know, you've done a few episodes of Gossip Girl, for example, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Do you get recognized, you know, when you go out and about in this life that you, you know, as you said, you never could have imagined? Huh. Uh, well, if I am recognized, they usually, uh, it's either the theater kids who know right away because they're amazing and theater fans, there's no fans like theater fans. Um, but if it's for TV, they often can't place what it is, but they know they've seen me, you know, it's one of those deals. And then if they start guessing, um, you know, usually once they say gossip girl or Madam secretary, they, uh, and they, uh, the bell rings and they all of a sudden want a picture. So <laughs> it's crazy. But the TV's been fun. It's, it's something I never thought I would do. You know, when when I first started doing Broadway, there was a bit of a snobbery, more than a bit of a snobbery, against Broadway actors, particularly musical Broadway actors, to do television. They'd be like, oh, no, we want a real actor for this, or we need we need someone that's not going to come in and be showbiz, you know. So, um, But I'm proud to say that uh, more and more musical comedy actors are finding work regularly in television. Now, have you done any TV work during the pandemic? I have not. I wish I could. Um, there hasn't been much, but I, I do the obligatory self-tapes, uh, you know, here set up at the house. We've got a sort of a studio going in our guest room here with the light and everything. But um, I'm thrilled to say things are coming back. And I'm also thrilled to say that not doing eight shows a week for the first time in a long time, um, I'm able to finally watch um, all the shows, <laughs> you know. Um, so we've been just binging everything. 
and enjoying that, watching other people work. But I'm hopeful, obviously, that that things come back. And you know, the auditions are you know you you, you send in enough auditions to your agent manager, you get something. You know, once in a while, it's your turn to get the gig. You know, you you do your best and try to forget about it. And once in a while, the phone rings and say, "Hey, remember that one? You got it." And, uh, that's always fun. And residual checks are a lovely thing. You know, I shot a Law and Order about 12, 13 years ago, and dude, I still get like 30 bucks a month from the four lines I had on Law and Order all those years ago. So <laughs> residuals are a lovely, lovely thing. Now, let me ask you, you know, I was talking about the Bad News Bears before and how fun that would be to bring to the stage. Is there like some sort of dream role that you'd either like to, you know, create from the ground up or, you know, even if it was an existing show that, or a show that they wanted to revive that you would really like to step into and think you could knock out of the park? Huh. Well, there's so many good ones. I mean, you know, I, I would do anything in Guys and Dolls. I think it's the most perfect piece of musical comedy ever written. It's its own language, its own rhythm, its own pulse. It's just genius. Um, but in terms of a new thing, um, I'd like to do something that isn't based on a movie, <laughs> actually. Um, so, uh, although I'm very proud of the ones I've done, uh, I'd like to do something really original. So, um, I always tell the people say, what's your dream job? I say the next one, you know? Um, so, but I, if I could choose, it would be not based on an iconic film of some sort and, but, but a role as much fun as say Vlad was in Anastasia or, or the dad in a Christmas story, something just fun that lets me do my stupid stuff you know, be all John Bolton up there and hopefully not have people roll their eyes. <laughs> you said Vlad. I was, I was like going out of my way during the introduction to make sure I say it as Vlad as if like I actually know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm Italian. I don't know Russian from... Dude, that took us forever. <laughs> that took us forever. Well, like we're saying Vlad. Why aren't we saying Anastasia? You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah, that was hard to say. So I try to find, I try to find some sort of in-between way to say it. So I say, who'd you play in Anastasia? Oh, I played Vlad. I played Vlad, you know, some sort of, is it Vlad or is it Vlad? I have no idea. Leave him guessing, uh, yeah. I, gotta, <laughs> <laughs> I want to mention, though, the two women I played opposite um, in that, they were just geniuses, and both of whom just brought out just more kookiness in me, and, and they both grounded me in many ways. It was the great Caroline O'Connor and the, and the great Vicki Lewis, who, were the, the, who played Countess Lily in Anastasia opposite me. And for those that don't know, that is the, the woman that I basically get to climb all over uh, for an extended period during, during the second act. And, um, and I'm very happy to report that the director just let us ride that wave of, well, are they laughing? If they're laughing, let's keep going you know, uh, and that was just such a, such an honor to do that with, with both of those amazing women. Did it ever miss with the audience? Did, did they always laugh when that would happen in that, uh, act two? They did, but you know, did, audiences are different. You know, you've got your moments in the show, particularly early on where, Ooh, that didn't get a laugh tonight. Well, Oh, bad audience, you know, but as soon as you think that they're screaming about something else or on their feet about this and, um, and they always stand up. So sometimes you think it's a bad audience and then they're just sort of quiet. Or not bad audience. No audiences are bad. But um, sometimes an audience might be a little more quiet. It's certainly much more of a, a pleasure to to play to a very vocal, a very vocal crowd. But uh, 
you know, especially when you're doing comedy, if they're not really rolling in the aisles, you kind of start to doubt and you start to feel like the biggest schmackter in the world. Like, oh my gosh, is this even funny anymore? Even though last night they just were literally rolling in the aisles. But they always stand up and cheer at the end of the show. So different different audiences have different personalities and you just can't ever doubt the work of your director, your writers. Don't ever doubt the work of yourself. Be confident and know that what you do is is good, even if they're not the most vocal audience. So, you know, in baseball, fans drive the performance in such a big way. In theater, it's the same thing. So if you have a tough crowd, we're not or a tough audience, we're not going to say bad audience, we're going to say tough audience. Are you going to change up the way you deliver a line because you think it might hit based on, you know, some of the other things that they were actually laughing at? Or are you always staying on book with, you know, how you how you typically do things with your best audience? Well, you certainly don't hold for laughs so much if they're not there, uh, because that's awkward pause um, for for no reason. So I would imagine the pace is a bit quicker, but no, you you still do the thing. You still you still do the thing because usually by this point you've done it, you know, at least a hundred times, and and you sort of know where it sits. So it would just feel wrong to do it any different way, any to to really change it up in any way. Um, but you, I guess, I guess I could say yes. You do it quicker. <laughs> gotcha. Now, John, you've accomplished so much, you know, on stage, on screen. But now, this part of Break a Bat's about to get a little bit tough. I want you to visualize yourself, you know, going back to your athletic days. It's the ninth inning. There's two outs. Uh, you got a couple men on base. You got to bring home the winning run. And Araldus Chapman is on the mound, throwing 105 miles an hour. So I'm gonna. I think of me as Araldus Chapman tonight, and. I'll ask you some questions. You tell me the first thing that comes to your head and feel free to tell some stories because you're very good at that. <laughs> okay. As long as it's not sports stats, I think I'll be good. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Favorite New York City meal? Meal? Uh, okay. Uh, d- uh, the cannelloni at Sardi's. Most old fashions that you've put back in one night after a show? Six, and I regretted it about 20 minutes after. <laughs> that must have been a Sunday when the, when Monday was dark, right? Is that what I'm guessing here? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, um, my dressing room at Anastasia became uh, um, the sort of de facto bar of the theater uh, simply because of my zeal for uh, discovering new bourbons. Uh, and uh, I just love the mixology of it all. I just, I love it. And I do drink responsibly. I, I do promise you. But I had a good friend that was um, the general contractor for some work that was being done at the magician David Copperfield's five-story apartment on the 57th floor in on the east side. And we had free reign of David Copperfield's apartment and the 360 deck that went around it. Those old fashions were pouring. That <laughs> and I regret to inform the uh, cleaning lady at Mr. Copperfield's apartment that I uh, unfortunately left uh, quite a bit of my DNA behind. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. How about this one? Beach vacation or ski vacation? Beach. I love both, but beach, beach, beach. Team Jeter or Team A-Rod? Jeter. Jeter. My dog scared Derek Jeter once. Uh, uh, he crossed the stride of a very large, very friendly Rottweiler mix. And uh, it was indeed Derek Jeter. No question. It wasn't just, oh, we looked like him. No, it was Derek Jeter. Um, and uh, he crossed the street to avoid having to walk by my dog. 
Wow. There you go. He's the cuddliest, sweetest dog in the world. I was like, my dog just scared Derek Jeter. I'm the happiest man. Yeah, this guy was diving face first into the sands to catch a ball against the Red Sox. But good to know that your fluffy, nice dog scared the captain. <laughs> she wasn't fluffy. She was pretty intimidating if you didn't know that she was. A, I mean, he didn't run, you know, tiptoe and scream, but he was like, oh, oh, dear. Oh, oh, oh my. You know, so, there you go. So. How about this one? Actor or actress you learned the most from? Orson Bean. Great comedian, became good friends with him after working with him uh, at Goodspeed Opera House uh, 10, 12 years ago. And I'm so proud to literally consider myself a member of his his extended family. He passed away earlier this year um, uh, and uh, got our year off to a really crappy start. Um, uh, and uh, I do think, what would Orson do so much? Even when doing something as simple as telling a joke, I think, what would Orson do? And what would what he would do is take all the fat off of that joke, and how can you tell that joke in the clearest, cleanest, quickest way possible? So, Orson Bean. You have to binge watch Glee or The Muppet Show. Which do you choose? Muppet Show, no question. Most embarrassing on stage moment. Oh gosh, who? Um, most embarrassing on stage moment. I would think that laughing laughing uncontrollably on stage and just being absolutely helpless out there and knowing what was embarrassing about it was knowing that I would have to face a very angry stage manager when I got off stage. Not like, you know, my pants fell down or I slipped and fell or anything, but just laughing and knowing, oh my God, I'm going to be in so much trouble. How about this one? Opposite side of the ball. Proudest moment of your career. Having my parents come to my Broadway debut and, uh, you know, feeling like, hey, the system works. And lastly, what's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you? The best piece of advice? Do you. You are your own secret weapon. Don't compare yourself to other people. You know, uh, don't let other people's successes mean that you failed in some way. Don't compare yourself to other people. Be happy for your friends. Be happy for them. Uh, and that once you start cultivating the fact that you are unique and you are, like I said, you are your own secret weapon. That's the best advice I ever got. Love that, John. And uh, I got to tell you, this was a real thrill for me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Seriously, can't thank oh, you enough for coming on tonight. It's such a pleasure, Al. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if the folks at home want to connect with you on social media, where's the best place that they could find you? Uh, Instagram, it's John Bolton at it's John Bolton. Awesome. Well, folks, we can't thank you enough for joining us tonight on Break a Bat. This is Al Malafronte signing off for the Broadway Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Break a Bat. This is produced by the fine folks at the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit and subscribe at bpn.fm slash breakabat. You can find me online at break underscore a underscore bat underscore podcast. And you can also find the Broadway Podcast Network on Instagram at Broadway Podcast Network. It's been so great having you here with us today, and we'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 